Well, good evening, Mick. Once again, another Sunday evening. A lot seems to have happened since we last spoke to you, but that's pretty much the case, isn't it? You've been to Ukraine again. I mean, it's kicking off there now, isn't it? What's happening? Well, it certainly is. Um, the counter-offences that have started, I think it's probably different to how people are imagining it because it's a slow, grinding process. So they're now uh, along this sort of 600-mile uh, front line, uh, there are various Ukrainian moves in various directions. First thing is is that there is a sort of clampdown on information. I think the Ukrainian forces uh, want to restrict the amount of information because that information can then be used by the uh, Russian forces. So there's only a limited amount of information coming out. Second thing is you're talking in eastern Ukraine about a thousand kilometre front line. Uh, so it's an enormous area to be covered, and there is a lot of probing going on by Ukrainian forces. These areas are very heavily mined, uh, so vehicles going through, there's a certain number of losses that are inevitable as part of that process. I think it's also clear that the main forces uh, of Ukraine are being held back. Um, of course, we've had that tragic incident, really, of the blowing up of the uh, of the dam near Kherson, uh, and uh, that has flooded the enormous area. And what seems to be clear now is that uh, that was done deliberately in order to limit the area in which the Ukrainian counteroffensive could take place. It seems statements and comments that have been made and interceptions of, uh, of conversations uh, clearly indicate that that's why it happened. But, I mean, it has flooded an enormous area of Ukraine. It has flooded an area that is part of the breadbasket of Ukraine, and it will have an impact on, I think, world food prices as well as uh, an eco ecological legacy. Well, there was some seismic uh, information, wasn't there, from, from the Norwegians, from their earthquake detector um, of explosions around the same time that the dam uh, was breached. Yeah, it's, it's very clear that this isn't a dam that could have been uh, blown up by missile attacks. They're too uh, rigid for that, that it had to have been something at the base of the dam. And, of course, it's an area that was occupied by Russia. They were in control of the dam. Uh, and uh, we know that they had mined the dam uh, ahead. That was common knowledge already. Whether they intended the complete damage to, to the dam that was that happened uh, may be another matter, but the effect of it is a lot of uh, Ukrainian people died, a lot of people, a lot of Russian troops uh, drowned in the uh, uh, in the dam flooding as well, as well as Ukrainian troops. So it has had a catastrophic effect, but it is a war crime. Uh, and uh, no doubt it'll be the International Criminal Court will be following this up as one of the many war crimes that they are now pursuing. It's a very confused picture from outside, isn't it? Um, because the, the press were allowed in. I mean, this is an area formerly controlled or presumably still controlled by the Russians. Yet there were Ukrainian soldiers helping rescue people in boats in that area at the time. How does all that work when, you know, clearly the, the Russians are technically still in charge of that area? Well, I think the way it works is, is exactly what happened. Uh, the Russians had been moving their troops now to other parts of the front line, so it was clearly sort of pre-planned. I think what was what added to the uh, to the war crime really was the actual continued shelling then uh, of those residential areas while Ukrainian troops were trying to carry out rescue activities. Um, it's good to see now that at last the international rescue operation is taking place, that there are boats, there is equipment, because you've now got several hundred thousand people who are without homes, and even though the flooded areas are now receding, well, of course, a house that's been flooded is not fit for habitation. You know, there's damage to the walls, damage to the infrastructure, and that will take quite some time and some considerable investment to begin to restore those particular properties, let alone what the potential damage is to the surrounding land so the situation generally then, because of that very long front you mentioned, it, it's not going to be possible for us outside because, as you say, the security is tight. Nobody's saying anything. They're probably monitoring each other's radio, so they're not even saying much on the radio, are they? So we're not going to know what's happening there for a while. Um, no, I mean, we'll see bits of information, bits of information that, for example, the Ukrainian government want to put out to show progress. 
uh, the bits that the Russian media will want to put out to show that uh, no, that they're resisting and that it's not going well, etc. So the real truth and the real image of what will happen uh, it will take some time. I mean, all I can say is that, you know, you get information from family members, but, you know, quite often even family members in Ukraine uh, only know so much as well, and they are discouraged from talking too much about it. Uh, the only thing that's fair to say is, of course, nearly everyone has someone or other who's involved in the conflict. So this is something that really goes into the the heart and soul of sort of every home in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, I see at the moment, of course, there's a, there's a big BBC um, uh, programme which is really about the number of uh, Russians that have been killed and the reporting of those and the impact of those and the use of the uh, Wagner mercenaries. So sort of information and programmes like that give an image of what is happening. But what is happening is pretty um, gruelling. It is almost sort of First World War-like where... Basically, you can report success in a day by advancing several hundred metres. But the crux really is getting through those main defensive lines. Then I think is where the real offensive will begin to take place. And meanwhile, of course, uh, the Welsh efforts to help the situation are continuing and I notice you've uh, got hold of a fire engine this week. Yeah, uh, Vaughan Gethin, the economy minister, uh, has arranged for uh, one of our airport uh, fire engines to go to Kharkiv. Kharkiv is uh, Ukraine's biggest city in the east. Uh, It's very close to the Russian front line. Of course, the airport there was uh, was bombed. Um, should mention, of course, there are no civilian aircraft or no civilian flights in operation, so only military. But to enable that to continue operating, they need more fire tenders. So there is a, a gift from Wales of uh, uh, of one of these um, airport fire fire engines. They're quite uh, impressive pieces of machinery. It's being loaded onto a, a, a truck, and that is heading towards uh, Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine as we talk at this very moment. And that's a real real gesture because they're specialised bits of kit, aren't they? They they are, and there are many of these around. You know, we regularly uh, replace them and modernise them, but that doesn't mean that they're not fit for purpose. And so it's ideal that this sort of equipment can actually be taken to Ukraine and maintained where it will be very usefully uh, uh, used but also received. And I think... Um, and, you know, the goodwill is very much appreciated. Same time, really, in Kharkiv as well, into one of the uh, hospitals, one of the specialist hospitals uh, in that part. Uh, we've also just delivered a very large generator donated by uh, a company, um, uh, High Admit Projects, in, uh, based in Tolbert Green. Um, it's a family-owned uh, business, and uh, they have connections with Ukraine and family in Ukraine. And in fact, one of them came out with us recently to the uh, our recent visit to Ukraine to deliver uh, vehicles and equipment. Uh, but it was good to see this large generator that wasn't being used is now there to keep the energy energy supply going in one of the hospitals. Um, I mean, those you know, it's a major effort getting this type of equipment uh, into Ukraine and then across Ukraine. So very pleased to see the doctors there welcoming receipt of it. Excellent. That's excellent news, isn't it? It's good to be able to help in such a practical way because obviously the you know the power infrastructure is constantly under attack. Lots has been happening back home, of course, hasn't it? Um, let's well, let's <laughs> apart from the obvious, <laughs> the elephant in the room. Yes, we won't talk about that just yet, perhaps. But we will talk about um, this week. You and the first minister were celebrating the passing of the royal assent of mm-hmm. your heritage legislation. How, how does that work? What we have are what are called consolidation bills, and that is in some areas. Um, the legislation has been changed you know, every period of time and, and exists in four, five, six, seven, eight places, sometimes going back over 100 years. This is the legislation on how we preserve and protect our castles, our ancient buildings, uh, the, the, the chapels in the valleys of South Wales, uh, historic monuments and things that are important to our heritage and culture within Wales. 
so what we're doing is we're not changing the law, but what we have done is brought all these pieces of law together uh, into one bill. We've modernised them. Uh, we've uh, uh, made it simpler. So it is all in one single piece of legislation. And the idea there is it makes it easier for those who uh, have to deal with uh, ancient monuments, those who have to engage perhaps in planning process around it. Maybe they have a property that is listed at uh, a certain level, uh, or maybe it's to do with uh, assets in our communities. But it is there to make the law easier and more accessible. So we didn't change the law. We did modernise it, take some of the old phrases out. We've simplified some of the phrases. With some of the old legislation... Um, they don't have any sort of um, memorandums that explained what the legislation was about. So you've had to sort of almost try to guess what it probably was intended to do. And because the purpose is not changing law, but to take that law and to bring it into one single piece of understandable legislation. So uh, that that law, the, uh, uh, the, the, the heritage law has now uh, gone to King Charles. Uh, he has signed it. It has now had the Welsh Government's seal, or the Welsh Senate's seal, uh, put on it, uh, and it gets delivered to the presiding officer and then effectively becomes law. So we're now looking at uh, what would be the next piece of legislation that we want to do this for. So one of the areas that we're working on at the moment is to bring the planning law all together in one place. I think there are a lot of communities, a lot of people, a lot of councils, a lot of developers who would welcome having the planning law taken away from all those different areas where it is and brought into one simple piece of legislation. The idea is for the long term that we do this year after year, a little bit at a time, to bring all our laws into a, a sort of simple code. Uh, and instead of bringing new laws every time we want to change something, you change the code. So you change the one piece of legislation. So it makes the process of legislating in the future simpler, less expensive, but also clearer and more accessible. So it's about accessibility, it's about simplicity, and it's about clarity. Now, this week, the um, climate change minister uh, hit a potential obstacle, which she's fairly determined to just walk over, really, it seems, which is called the UK government, who appear to have a point of view about recycling glass mm. as opposed to recycling anything else. Um, and have told the Scottish, who are planning a similar piece of legislation to us here, um, that they can't recycle glass because it inconveniences businesses too much, they think. Um, how that's different from plastic and other materials metals i uh, i've no idea but but this is another one of those um places isn't it where and you know you've got your legal hat on where either the welsh government has jurisdiction over certain matters or it doesn't and and really um you've mentioned in the past that the the moment the, the current you know conservative uk government appears to have a view that if it doesn't actually like any of the things that we're doing under our devolved legislation. They just say we can't do it, really. Yeah, I mean, it is actually quite a, an appalling about-face in terms of uh, environmental legislation because there was agreement between the four nations of the UK uh, through what are called common framers. This is like a cooperative model where the four nations get together to work out what needs uh, to be done with regard to the internal market in the UK. So the UK government has said, yes, we're going to introduce legislation in respect of glass. Scotland has already invested quite a lot of money uh, in the uh, technology behind the, you know, the deposit bottle system. You know, when I was a kid and probably when you were as mm. well, Terry, you took your bottles back to the shop and you got fourpence or whatever it is on them and, uh, you know, uh, that's how you got your pocket money. Um, well, of course, this is something using technology where the bottles automatically get scanned, they go in and uh, it's all done using the uh, high technology systems that we have available to us now. Um, so basically, we were all doing this together. Now, what seems to have happened is that within uh, England, uh, the UK government, probably because of lobbying of uh, some of the industry, have decided that they don't want to play ball anymore. And if they don't want to play ball anymore, then no one else can play ball. So work that is going on within Wales that we want to introduce such le legislation, uh, work that's going on in Scotland that might get 
significantly damaged as a result of this. You know, the whole process might collapse, and again within Northern Ireland, is all being held back because within England they, they've had a change of direction, and because of the Internal Market Act, uh, they're saying, well, we've got this trump card. So uh, even though we'd all agreed we're doing this, we're going to take our our ball away now, and no one else can sort of play on the pitch. Um, it really is. It really is uh, one of those constitutional dysfunctions that needs to be resolved in the future because you can't go on planning like this you know you have agreement you have cooperation it is working well is all for the benefit of the environment and then one of the parties suddenly normally England decide that they've uh, uh, they're going to pull out of it because uh, uh, they've been lobbied by the bottle industry and decided uh, they don't want to play 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 anymore your colleague Julie James has said that her reading of the um, bill you referred to, which is a UK government, mm-hmm. one of their recent ones, isn't it? Is that actually no single country can damage the economics of the other countries. Mm-hmm. And she's using that to say, well, England can't just go, you know, boo, we're not doing it now, and stopping the rest of us, you know, because of that um, provision in the Act. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have common frameworks in a whole range of areas. Uh, and it was post-Brexit and uh, the four countries got together in order to uh, develop a what is a sort of cooperative model called common frameworks. And there is a mechanism there that if someone wants to, you know, want to do something different that might impact on the internal market, then uh, as long as evidence can be produced and everyone will go along with it, uh, then those sorts of changes and those sorts of divergences can happen. So there is a procedure for this to be done. What has happened is the UK government, when it introduced the uh, United Kingdom Internal Market Act, it gave it a power to basically override it. And I think the use of that is actually disrupting what is a lot of good common practice going on together across the United Kingdom. We have a a particular dispute uh, on this because we actually think that uh, we can go ahead and we can do what we want to do with regard to uh, bottle recycling through the glass recycling um, and uh, uh, we have the power to do that and the UK government's internal market that can't override it. Uh, I won't go into the technicalities of the sort of constitutional opposition on it but this could well be something that at some stage ends up in the Supreme Court having to determine whether uh, we can do that or whether it gets overridden by the internal market act. We say, we say it doesn't But, you know, it really isn't good to have that level of uh, confusion and lack of certainty when you're taking these common measures, you know, across the whole of the UK to try and protect the environment. It would certainly take a lot of threepences a bottle to pay for the legal work, wouldn't it? Well, it certainly would, but you know that the bottling industry, because um, you know when we were when we were kids, of course, all these bottles were capable of being recycled. Now, of course, you know the millions and millions and millions and probably billions of bottles that are produced uh, are, are one-use bottles, aren't they? It's a bit like single-use plastics. So the question is then, you know, how do we actually get these bottles back into recycling? Well, I suppose one me- mechanism is to make it more economic to actually produce bottles that are reusable, but the other one is that if they're not reusable uh, that the the glass is recycled rather than dumped into tips and so on. A couple of days ago there was an announcement on Clean Air Day that over £50 million of Welsh Government cash, I think it's in the next year is going to be invested in active travel and it's giving councils upwards of well, more than half a million pounds and in fact RCT Council has acknowledged this to develop more of these routes and so on, which I was also um, crowing a bit that um, in Wales now, £22 per head of the population is being spent on on this initiative. And nobody's going to knock the initiative. The the bit that I left out of the press release, actually, was the bit that says uh, an England by equivalent of paying less than a pound per head. But, I mean, they didn't neglect it to observe. There are 40 million English people or something. So, I mean, it would be impossible, actually, without not having, you know, no defence spending or something to actually spend that much money on active travel. But notwithstanding, you know, obviously active travel is a great idea. Um, Some might say it's a little ambitious to think everyone's going to be out of their car and on their bike again, having given up bikes when they were, you know, kids. Um, But... When the health service is in the state that it is, uh, you know, and that social care is in the state that it is, can it really be justified to spend, you know, 60 million quid nearly, uh, in a year, I think, 
on on something when you know another part of the Welsh government's responsibility budget wise is is so in need of more. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of balance, isn't it? Mm. And, of course, one of the big issues in terms of health challenge uh, is really people's fitness, people's personal health, obesity, the issue of diabetes, you know, which costs Welsh government, I think, several billion pounds uh, every year and is also one of the biggest life threats and complicators when if people go into hospital. So the idea that, we, that people need to take more responsibility for their health, but people need to become more active, uh, people need to be have the opportunity to do things that improve their health is one of those long-term things isn't it with uh, with the health service you know it's not just about having the health service as a body that uh, you go to when you become ill and that, that uh, gives you some sort of uh, medicines or surgical uh, treatment or whatever but it's also about part of our health system has got to be making helping to people to get healthier to not need to go into the health service is to not need the, to use those particular services. So it's about joining up, I think, the sort of well-being of, our, of people within Wales. And, you know, 40, 40, 50 million pounds sounds like a lot. But, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, a, a cycle path uh, in an area, you know, can, can easily cost half a million pounds. It, it, is, it is quite a modest start to something that needs to go on for quite a number of years. Uh, as we plan routes, as we develop, whether it be new roads or new routes that are taking place or repairs or remodelling that's taking place, it's making sure we start building into that uh, the ability to, to walk, to run, uh, to cycle. Uh, and I'd say even for those, uh, certainly because it's an issue in my constituency uh, in Tonnerevel, I get raised, and I'm sure it's all around as well, is equestrians those who have horses that uh, like to have routes where they can ride their horses. So I, I think it's part, it's, you know, it's part of the jigsaw of well-being of society. I don't think you can isolate those things from one another. Um, and if we forever say, well, um, we'll forever never not do this, there's always another priority. So it's getting the balance right, I think. Yes, and nobody would deny either that the, you know, the health condition, despite all of the modern advances in you know, medicine, people are not looking after themselves and they appear it would well, perhaps it would be unfair to say but it does look as though people feel they have to do absolutely nothing to maintain their health and the hospital should be able to mend everything yeah well we know that there aren't silver bullets i mean one of the big growth areas we've noticed this through covid and so on is the focus really on mental health and what we do know is that one of the best uh, ways of dealing with some mental health problems is actually exercise. It's actually physical health actually leads to mental health as well. So, you know, it is part of that picture as well. But I do think we do have to develop the mentality that we need to take greater responsibility for our own health in terms of uh, uh, our diet, the food we use. And I know that Welsh government's also looking at the issue of the amount of processed food that we have. You know, it's not that there isn't a lot of good food out there, but there's an awful lot of food which uh, has long-term uh, health implications, whether it be in terms of illnesses and potentially cancers or whatever. But certainly a lot of processed food is uh, something where I think we're becoming increasingly aware uh, it's not good for us in the quantities and volumes that we are consuming it. So I think the whole there's an educational role as well, money we need to spend within our education system, educating people about the things that impact on their health and things that people can do themselves to improve their health. So I think, again, that's all part of that, I think that jigsaw uh, of well-being. Well, processed food is looking uh, to be the sort of modern equivalent of colourings in, in the 80s. Kids were going hyper in the 80s and nobody could work out why. Yeah. And then they found it was the stuff in the orange squash, you know, uh, and there was an enormous, oh my goodness, uh, you know, and a massive amount of, well, I don't say massive amount, there was a lot of reaction to it when people realised that the colourants were, you know, being stimulated yes. in a way that wasn't required. Uh, I think this processed food issue is similar in a way that, you know, it appears very tasty, it's um, relatively affordable when people haven't got yeah. much money. Uh, but it, it's a it's a time bomb, really. The Panorama program a couple of weeks ago, it was frightening that they took a, a pair of uh, identical girls who are about 24, identical sisters, 
with identical health, actually. Mm. And they gave one um, a, a healthy diet uh, of reasonable amount of calories. And they gave the other one um, arguably unhealthy diet, you know, of processed mm. foods, but the same number of calories. So one wasn't, you know, a much more calorific diet than the other. They were very carefully monitored and they were scanned and, and um, assessed after just two weeks of this. And after two weeks, the one on the uh, processed food had put on a little bit of weight, um, various, you know, unpleasant things in the blood which could lead to strokes and heart attacks yeah. were starting to be present after two weeks. Yeah. And although they said, well, look, don't worry, you know, you won't suffer any long term, long as you don't carry on this way. But the thing is, the girl who was on the processed food was eating the same as a lot of people's children and a lot of adults are eating right now. And it was, well, frightening, really. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we've known for a long time the combination of additives and preservatives. You know, some are, uh, you know, I suppose helpful in the sense of preserving food, but it's the understanding of the combination of those. Uh, and I think clearly, I think we want to get to a situation where we, the less we have, the better. And that's again in, in terms of our long health. Because at the end of the day, if if we can do that, if we can do that sort of shift in, in, in diet and in people's attitudes towards uh, their own well-being, uh, it means that they're not going to end up in hospital requiring all sorts of treatments and so on. So, you know, I'd rather see a system where there isn't the need for that sort of NHS treatment because people are living healthier, better lives. Uh, so it is about it is also about culture change, isn't it, in, in our society? But it is also, I mean, I suppose you know the the elephant in the room is poverty within our society, mm. the affordability uh, of good, healthy food, and making sure that, uh, uh, that you know that people can have that healthy diet. And I think that is one of the challenges that we really have as a society and that governments have in terms of how they uh, manage that transition as well. Well, however you look at it, to eat a healthier diet um, with fresh foods and so on, especially at the moment, it is more expensive mm. than, you know, fat-filled cheap stuff. No, I think that I think that's absolutely right, and we have to look at really the I think the taxation system in terms of some of these, uh, but also how you actually uh, make healthier food uh, and fresh food uh, available more easily at the price. I think there is a lot of um, uh, really affordable, healthy food. One of the problems is, uh, in terms of the speed of life we have and with microwaves and so on, you know, it's food that normally needs to be prepared and cooked. And in many families, people have got out of the habit of actually cooking a meal or a meal for the whole family, uh, of, of cooking uh, vegetables, of steaming vegetables, uh, you know, of having other fresh produce. So there's a, I think there's a, there's a shift in how we actually behave uh, and how we actually, you know, see our... Uh, food consumption uh, and that is something that's really difficult because we know that for many families the, the easy thing is is to get something to bung it in the oven to bung it in the microwave it's all pre-prepared normally processed and so on normally at a sort of cut price uh, thing uh, so it, it's a sort of easiness thing but we really need to think about how we begin to move away from that uh, there's this there's a certain amount the government can do in terms of education, in terms of how it manages the, the food industry, but there's an awful lot in terms of uh, people buying into it and accepting responsibility for that as well. Presumably some, some of this can be tackled in schools, can't it? I, mean, I don't know whether they still have the equivalent of, you know, cooking lessons. Uh, yeah, well, you, you've caught me on that one. I'm not quite sure what the situation is now with cooking levels, because it used to be, wasn't it, the boys went and did uh, woodwork or metalwork, uh, and the girls yes. went and did what they called home economics, yes, you know, know. which was basically uh, cooking. It would have I to think, have a different approach these well, days. Well, <laughs> a, a different approach, because it's, it's equally important to, 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 to boys as well as girls that uh, you know things about nutrition uh, and about health, you know, healthy living and about cooking as well. Um, I think 
I was fortunate. My mum taught me to cook, you know, so I knew how to open a pack of uh, Vesta curry by the time I was 13, you know. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I did. I was, I was actually, t- as a child, I was actually taught uh, how to cook, how to uh, fry, how to boil and how to make meals, as well as how to darn in the days when people darn socks and jumpers, uh, something some of the listeners will uh, remember, uh, others won't. We, we used to repair our socks. We didn't throw them away as tends to happen now and the same with jumpers as well uh, and again ironing um, I've been trying to teach my kids on to the importance of ironing they seem to prefer the uh, ragged uh, unironed look you know with clothing these days well uh, when when sort of stuff you didn't need to iron it um, came along my, my um, late wife said hallelujah uh, and never bought anything that needed ironing from that point onwards and, and our ironing board is you know in the depths of a, of a cupboard somewhere and hasn't apart from like when my daughter wanted to borrow it to to put a frock on to go out to a special event it was the last time it was used and uh, so you know these things move on but just thinking about youngsters again mm. now if we can actually um be as successful with youngsters uh, in creating the impression that they do actually need to look after what they eat and not always down the burger place you know as soon as they they can cause that's what most of them do because they're hugely aware of things like climate change, you know, and holding governments to account yes. on this. So if they became that evangelical about the diet, we, we, we would at least fix the next generation. Oh, I, I, th- I think, you know, education starts and uh, has to start at a very, very young age. I think it also now that we're providing more free school meals to, uh, to, to students in school, ensuring that they also show the sort of balanced uh, nutritionist diets uh, that are there. Um, uh, so it'd be interesting to watch but you're right it's an important part of education as is civic education you know people's responsibilities within our democratic system within our voting system uh, I'm very fortunate two of my um, two of my uh, grandchildren are 10, uh, 10 and 9 one uh, always insists if I go that we should go to somewhere like McDonald's for a burger but the other one always insists that she wants salad so uh, I'm sort of halfway there wow <laughs> <laughs> very, very unusual. When I explain this to people, they are quite shocked that I, I that uh, I've got a ten year old who yeah. is basically loves salad and prefers salad to uh, burgers. But uh, I, I, would I be right in thinking that the salad lover is a girl? Yes, and the other one isn't. No, they're both girls. <laughs> oh, they're both girls. <laughs> okay, okay, because I would have had hundred percent right if I thought it was a boy who wanted to eat the unhealthy stuff, because that's usually the case. But there we are. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So there's some hope there, anyway. And you can hope maybe you know it's catching this uh, salad thing. But well, I hope so. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Well, I I can't have a point of view on this, uh, but I'm throwing it out to you in the hope that you won't just have the Labour point of view on it, okay? Because obviously there's been a, a pretty momentous um, report that's come yeah. out in in Parliament this week. Uh, which has found that after examining every, all the evidence and the photographs for you know, 18 months <laughs> or something, has uh, found that the former Prime Minister did lie to the House. It appears that quite a few Conservatives are sort of nodding their heads to this, and it's quite likely to go through on a vote. But this is a meticulous mm. procedure, and, and what is perhaps missing in some of the um, replies from Mr Johnson, that the, the, it was bias, Gov. The, the, the chair is, is a well-known Labour person who's not a huge fan of the Prime Minister on record, really, over the years, former Prime Minister. Um, but the fact of the matter is that that committee has actually got more Conservatives on it than it has Labour people uh, or people from other parties. Uh, it's also gone through a meticulous process, the, you know, the procedure for which is laid down in, you know, over thousands of years of, of tradition. And it, it appears to have been quite thorough in coming to this conclusion. And the conclusions, you know, has been just rubbished by Mr. Johnson, just said it's, I mean, he's just used single words to, to say how junky he thinks it is. And a very similar thing is happening in America at the moment, mm. where apparently the former president went home with a pile of top-secret stuff about nuclear uh, energy and all sorts of other issues, which are fairly sensitive, mm. in boxes, 
and and obviously he'd have to, he'd have some of this stuff at home while he's you know president as, as we can understand secret and so on but you do have to give it back <laughs> if you're not president anymore and the, there appears to be evidence that he actually hid it you know and told his people not to hand it over if you know the FBI came round or whatever and although it's the first prosecution as i understand it of a former president ever in the history of america and it wasn't just a few boxes it was like lots lots of stuff that was retrieved from his house yet the way it's being swung by him and his supporters is that it, you know it's unfair gov you know they just have to get me i i mean listen i think this is one of those areas uh, and in both cases where it comes out of any sort of party political interest what it does it goes to the core to the soul of our democratic systems uh, and the obligations that there are on politicians but also the fact that no one whatever position they hold in government or wherever uh, is beyond those rules and beyond the law you know uh, we have many concerns don't we about you know the law applies to 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 them uh, to us and not to them and so on but this goes really to the roots um of our democracy if we start with the boris johnson one and the committee there i mean you're right this is a cross party committee this is not a committee that is owned or controlled by the labor party or any other in fact it has a majority conservative members it's also a committee that has been established by parliament itself you know we don't have a written constitution we don't have a lot of written rules uh, or laws that control uh, how parliament operates so it is done by convention by long standing historic agreements and those agreements have sort of come into place because of the need to actually protect the integrity of parliament itself one of the fundamental rules is with government ministers is that if they make a statement uh to parliament that is a statement on behalf of the government and it has to be factually correct you have to be able to believe in the truth of what is being said now of course people make mistakes people will get things wrong people will say something that they thought was correct and so on so you have a system there where when you become aware of that you have to correct the record we've had something similar to that in the well senate recently with the health minister having to correct the record over things that she said it goes to the absolute core doesn't it that you have to have confidence and faith that what is being said is truthful uh, and uh, all the committee is really doing is basically determining now did the prime minister the former prime minister lie to parliament um uh, uh, did he genuinely believe what he said or was he basically deliberately misleading parliament uh, they have assessed and analyzed an enormous amount of material uh and they have all come unanimously come to the conclusion uh that the that Boris Johnson deliberately misled parliament and that even when he had an opportunity to correct a record he chose not to uh and they regard that as something of such significance that there should be a penalty and the penalty recommended is a suspension from parliament they weren't throwing him out of parliament uh it was a suspension from parliament but of course if you are suspended by parliament for a certain period of time for misbehavior what it then does it gives a right to the constituents of that person to decide whether they want him to continue as their mp so there can be a referendum for uh, uh for an election uh and uh it seems to me those are absolutely proper checks and balances on the exercise of power I think it ill behoves anyone to turn around and then say oh well just because you disagree with it's a kangaroo court or whatever it clearly isn't a kangaroo court it clearly is uh, a parliamentary body that was being given a responsibility and it seems to me they've carried it out very efficiently I think those same principles are the same principles that are applying now in America with uh, Donald Trump where it seems there is clear evidence 
that he knew he had uh, secret documents. He knew he had documents that could be very damaging if they uh, got into uh, another country's domain. I know that there is raised that there are concerns as to whether family members of his have had access to them and have been able to make use of them. Uh, that's one of the things that is suggested. Well, we'll that will have to wait and see what comes out in the court. But it is again about those principles, isn't it? Firstly, that no one is above the law. Uh, secondly, there are rules that are brought in to um, prevent the abuse of power by either presidents or even ex-presidents. He had the opportunity when he was president to declassify those documents. That would have meant going through a process where you could show those, those documents were no longer a security risk. He clearly chose not to do that. Uh, and it seems to me that it is perfectly correct uh, that if those laws have been breached, and they, they are laws in America, uh, and part of the Constitution, uh, then they have to be enforced. And it seems to me that the process that's going on is not an unfair process. It's one that is there about protecting the rights of people and the integrity of the democratic system. If this had happened, say, 30 years ago, mm. the populations of said countries could be expected to go naughty boy, end of. And the millions on both sides of the Atlantic would have carried on knowing that their leader had been a bit naughty and had been censured for it in whatever way and move on. But of course, the, the business of trashing the credibility of the media, which Trump has heavily done and his supporters and many other right wing people in America have been doing now for decades, but particularly since social media has allowed. But what it means is the voices that would have would have been regarded by the um, the population generally as extremists are now given an amplifier and so when these things happen to the leaders and the leaders say it's a put up job then there are actually hundreds thousands possibly millions of people in the state particularly in the states who actually believe that because they don't believe that the media is telling the truth. And this is a key fundamental difference between, say, a similar situation happening 30 years ago and happening now, which is actually very disturbing, isn't it? It is, and it's one of the areas that I know that we're discussing within the Senate at the moment. I know Westminster discussing. It's really the growth of conspiracy theories, but also the abuse of uh, social media. Uh, the platform that is given to people who uh, might have just at one stage been regarded as a sort of strange extremist or whatever uh, that not many people heard about, but now have a platform for social media. Uh, that has changed. That's one of the real fundamental differences in our society now to 30 years ago that really needs to be addressed needs to be addressed in terms of education because we need to teach our children in schools to be inquisitive. You know, I remember my dad always said to me, and yours probably did as well, don't believe everything you read in the papers, you know, and that was always a check on that flow of information, you know. Yeah, but uh, then he'd you... switch on the BBC News yeah. and he would believe that. Yes, yes. Yeah, because basically because the the BBC had at least had a framework or, uh, that to create create integrity and to try and ensure balance in terms of information, but equally so, you know, I think it you know the the principle was there, you know, use your own mind, check out things yourself, don't always believe everything that you are told as though it is a fact. Uh, unfortunately, I think with the growth of social media and instant news and so on. That and the ability to to create news, to create videos, you know, creating impressions of people doing things that are created by either artificial intelligence or, you know, clever manipulation of software. Um, uh, you know, it's got to the case where I think a lot of people do actually believe the things they see instantly uh, that appear before them. So it really is necessary, I think, within society to look at how you address that, how you do it, address it so that things that are definitely false and there might even be damaging. And I'm thinking about things, for example, within, you know, that we had rising during the COVID inquiry, some of the things being said there that were clearly untrue, some of the things that have been said in the past about vaccines, you know, that people have gone along with, uh, and then their children have become ill because they hadn't been vaccinated. So I think there's a, a real challenge for society. I'm not sure what the answer is precisely how you do it, because you want to keep freedom of expression, freedom of uh, the media, 
freedom of views and exchanging ideas and so on. But equally so, you need to have a mechanism that at least gives some sort of fact check, that at least that teaches our, our children within schools uh, to be more inquisitive and challenging to the information they receive. Uh, and I think also in terms of stuff that is deliberately part of some sort of conspiracy agenda which is about uh, uh, you know political manipulation I think that is very very dangerous for the future and we do need to address it uh, I just think it's a very very complex task going back to what you were saying but when we were kids mm. um, I, that was absolutely the case actually that you know either my parents or somebody at school somebody said now the thing is that papers are owned by proprietors who have political leanings so this paper, you know, conservative, really. This one's a bit liberal. You know, the Daily Worker was fairly clearly polarised. And, and uh, you know, but, but I mean, it was about politics, though. Yeah. It wasn't about everything. Uh, so when you knew this, and also in Britain, we've had the tradition, you know, obviously through the BBC, but then on through commercial broadcasting with the same rules about an editorial, you knew pretty pretty reasonably that you could switch on the radio or the tv and what was presented to you on there and this is different from in other parts of the world including america to some degree although the main channels in america were trying to do a, a you know a bbc like news reporting job no matter who owned them who their shareholders were or who their sponsors of their big shows were i mean there was an effort to be detached in fairness there and when cnn came along it was similar in the sense of journalistic tradition and whatever. What we were brought up was the electronic media was as far as possible unbiased, but the print media was definitely, you know, you had to take it with a pinch of salt or, or know that you had to read it with a Labour-supporting hat on or a Tory-supporting hat on, and then you yeah. could understand the way the stories were written. But the stories, nevertheless had to be factually correct, generally yeah. speaking. You just knew it came with a slant. And that's fine, because everyone knew where they were then. But then social media has come along, and it's given equal prominence to everybody. Yeah. Now, yes, free, freedom of speech, we can't you know, go, ahead, go against that. It, it's great in the sense that in many, many ways, social media is a, a benefit to local community life, for example. We saw this in COVID, you know, with the, uh, the help groups that were coordinating help for pensioners who were stuck at home and couldn't go shopping. You know, there were lots of, there's lots of positive benefits that's come from community media. But perhaps one of the things that isn't a benefit is that everyone's voice has equal weight. Uh, and, uh, you know, a fairly extreme point of view that might only be shared normally by a few people appears to have gravity because it's on there. So, social media is a tremendous asset in many ways, doesn't it? It enables communities to talk about their experiences, things that are happening. You know, they talk about the different fates, the events, the charitable activities, about educational things, things going on in the community. Uh, but it is also has a dark side to it that it can be abused. It can be abused by people who want to present misinformation or people who believe uh, a particular conspiracy theory and then want to promote that through social media. It can also be sometimes something that can become quite intimidatory. Uh, we've seen this in politics as one of the concerns I have, and that is that we want people to be able to stand for elections, to represent communities and so on. But a lot of people don't want to do that because they say, well, I just subject myself and my family to this terrible abuse online. Uh, and uh, why should I do that? That is very damaging for democracy as well. You know, people have to be uh, encouraged and free and feel safe to be able to stand for elections. We've got a community council election going on in Lantwerp Vardu at the moment. Um, you know, I would hope that uh, anybody who wanted to stand for that could stand for it and they would be free and able to go along, to knock on doors, to engage with people, to talk about local issues. If you have a social media in the background that is actually malicious... Um, then, you know, it, it not only distorts the, that sort of discussion and debate, but it also discourages people from participating with our democracy, which means that the people who do stand are potentially for more extreme positions within the political spectrum because they're more determined to, uh, to, to engage. So I think we all lose out if we don't somehow tackle this issue. Your colleague in Taffeely, your MP colleague, Alex Davis-Jones, 
is chair of another one of the cross-party committees, actually, in uh, the House of Parliament. And as they've just report, done a report this week, haven't they, issued a report, which is uh, meant to be a guiding light to the government's levelling up uh, you know, thing. I mean, that's the intention, I think, that it, yeah. there'd be some bullet points. Uh, and, you know, it's looking at former coalfield communities, of which we yeah. have several, of course, here. Yeah. And it quite rightly finds that they're still lagging behind economically. Yeah. Yeah. The amount of social, you know, inactivity, economic inactivity is, is far greater than neighbouring cities and so on. So uh, there's a general consensus of agreement, I think, actually, a cross-party one. This Oops, is a cross-party that, that people should actually... Um, the government does need to do more about mm. this. Now, I noticed that a couple of the uh, the findings, one was that the um, the UK government should pay for the tips uh, and getting rid of them and, let you know, whatever. And they've actually refused to do that in the past. So I, I do wonder about that one. One of the other things that was a recommendation I noticed was that there should be more investment in transport, particularly trains. Well, tick. You know, that one is happening here. Presumably it isn't happening in other parts of the coal fields in the UK, which is how it's come up in the report. But what do you, you know, you'll have seen this, I'm sure. I mean, you have mining interests as well. What do you think is the realistic likelihood of the government taking this as a cross-party report and actually doing something? Because one of the other things I noticed yeah. was that more of the money that's coming through the the mine workers pension scheme should actually be given to the mine workers now this is not a, a new theme i remember no. beth winter going on about this yeah. a few months ago and it, and it's been on the tips of tongues all over the mining communities but what are the odds do you think now of the current government actually just ticking the boxes and doing something well, I think the current government uh, ticking the boxes, uh, it's not going to happen. I, um, my view is that we're getting to the last stage of uh, the government, the last year. Uh, I think we've got a government that's in considerable difficulties. I, you know, I would personally use the, the phrase almost a sort of meltdown. There's no indication that they are going to tick any of those boxes. We've been arguing from Welsh government for some time that the coal tips uh, and there's something like 2,400 of them in uh, uh, in the uh, in the South Wales area. Uh, if you add other spoil tips, actually, it's probably about 20,000. Uh, you know, if you talk about iron ore and all the others. But in terms of the coal tips, which are the ones of real concern, because they are on the sides of hills, uh, and we know with climate change that some of them are now beginning to move, and we have to address this. So, you know, at Welsh Government level, we, we are introducing legislation uh, on coal tips uh, in order to be able to regulate them, to tackle them, to deal with them because many of them are, are owned by all sorts of different people at the moment, so there are many complications over it. But the crux of it is actually the funding of it. Uh, I think we put in something like £20 million just last year just to deal with the Tylerston and some of the other work that is going on with the coal tips. Uh, but in order to address the rest of them, you're talking over the next 10 years about really half a billion pounds. These are legacies that go well before devolution. These are things that were there that no one realised were going to be a particular problem until climate change uh, hit us. But they're a legacy of a, an older industrial revolution that came well before devolution. And I just think morally, ethically and politically it's the responsibility of UK government collectively. It's part of that collective insurance policy we have by being part of the UK. So uh, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, uh, but uh, I would hope at some stage in the future there will be greater recognition of the cost of removing these for, for those communities. I think on some of the other issues with regard to transport, yeah, absolutely, we need to, uh, we're investing in new trains. Um, you know, if we had what we should have had, and that is the consequential funding from the HS2, we would have another five or six billion pounds, which we should have had constitutionally, to actually invest in our public transport system. OK, well, we've run out of time, but uh, very, very interesting, actually. Lots of subjects covered there. Um, so let's see you in a month's time and, and hope we don't have quite so many momentous occasions between now and then. Yep. thank you very much. Look forward to it.